Hello everyone, I'm Dennis and this is Sheet Valley, a show about Sheffield startups. The podcast is supported by Sheffield Technology Parks, one of the integral parts of our ecosystem providing support, office space and a lot more to startups and scale-ups. I will leave their link in the description to check them out. I also want to remind you to check my website, shivali.co.uk, where you can learn more about the initiatives that I'm trying to start. Always feel free to contact me if you have any questions either on my LinkedIn, my email dennis.vi at outlook.com or through Shivali's Twitter account. In this episode, I spoke with Simon Delaney from Databow. Simon is great to talk with and Databow is a world leader in what they do. So definitely a lot to learn from him. Let's jump to the episode. I hope that you enjoy it. So we have Simon Delaney from Databow. How are you today, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Can't complain. Just living the COVID life, you know. It's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, I want to start by learning a little bit more about you prior to Databow. Hmm. Sure. So prior to Databow, we actually had a lead gen agency called Media Bowl. So you see the how the name changed, and we set up in 2011. Myself and three colleagues. And we yeah, used to basically buy and sell leads or generate our own leads. Did really well. It was really successful. We operated globally. I think in the first year with four staff, we turned over about 1.4 million, I think it was, which in today's money because of inflation, everything's about 1.8, 1.9 million, which I think would probably place us in like, you know, one of the fastest growing bootstrap companies in that year, maybe in the UK. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. So we ran that agency until roughly 2016, and we used the money that we generated from there to build software. So the software was always named, so Databowl was always named even before then. So before we set up MediaBowl, I used to work at another company based in Sheffield called Data Media and Research, which is still going, changed slightly. So I started there in 2006. We used to do lead generation, all that type of thing. And I did a management buyout along with a, a bunch of other people. I led the management buyout in 2010 with the intention of building a lead management system. It was quite difficult just because of the sort of history of the company and the way it uh, set up and the technology they had. So that's why I decided to leave, set up MediaVolve and use it as a vehicle to fund development of the software in the future. That's what I did. So basically, I could see the kind of natural progression. Mediable, you made money that first year. Sounds amazing. And then Databowl. So tell us a bit more about, you know, why did you start it? How did you start it? And also, when did you start it? Sure. So the moment we set up Mediable, because if you're doing lead generation, quality is like the number one thing, right? There's a few elements that improve the conversion rates of leads that Companies buy, so there's things like speed and the intention of the user. And quality can sort of be caught up in those, but there's also like validation, finding out like patterns and um, patterns of intent in leads and really segregating how leads perform from different sources and different channels and things like that. So when you can start to identify that, you can really make a difference to the conversion rates from a lead to a sale. So as soon as we set up MediaBowl, I had a developer worked with us who I uh, used to work with previously and knew a bunch of stuff that we wanted to build in that leads could go into. So we um, built that and I just started iterating on it. We did like loads of research constantly on the leads that we were sending in, how they were performing. 
what the conversion rates were. We just get more and more and more. So we we, we called it ye old grey beast, this first bit of software, just because it was grey, looked really horrible. Could only use it internally, but it was an absolute beast of machine. It processed like millions of records and do all these validations and do external API lookups and everything else that we needed to. And the aim was to always like make that bigger start actually building a system so that what we were sort of doing could then be carried out by other companies. And we, you know, we'd really put emphasis in building out a software so that we could help lead buyers, brands buy better leads and help lead generators supply better leads. That was the sort of aim behind it. So it, it really, the, the, the thought that actually started in 2011 when we set up MediaBowl, but we, obviously software is a totally different beast and requires a whole different, or it has a whole different set of challenges and things than running an agency. So we, built the agency. I think we set the company up in about 2014, but we started building it in earnest in about 2015. So can I ask about the lead generation process? Let's just say one of my unsuccessful startups that I tried to try to set up was a business. Well, how, how many are there? Sorry? How many are there? So there's one which I pushed further and I really tried to build. And if we're talking about ideas, I don't even want to get into that, mate, because, you know, we're going to get into the tens, if not hundreds. But let's say the one that I really pushed, tried to push forward. It was uh-huh. a business, basically an Uber for cleaning. So let's say that I'm working with, with Databowl. How can you help me in generating leads for a business where I'm trying to get to customers that want this immediate service of, of getting their kitchen cleaned? Yeah, sure. So there's two elements of Databowl and leads effectively, right? So there's the generation of the leads, which require traffic and an entity to collect the leads. And then there's the sort of receiving of leads, which is what you do if you're a brand. So, you know, you want a a system to actually take the leads in, suppress it against current data you've got, like current customers, DGP or whatever else. So I can sort of answer it in both ways. So if we look at it first, that you need traffic, right? Because you're going for clients. So Uber for cleaning, how does that work? Like, what do you have <laughs> to put them out on a hoverboard like a little uh, cleaning person and send them around to people's houses or? Yeah, yeah. It's basically like you get people who are, who are cleaners. They want to earn some additional, some additional book when they're not working on their contract. And so yeah. my main target at the time was students. And it was actually provoked because my kitchen at my house that I was living was, was quite dirty many, many times. And sometimes it just can't be bothered, you know? Yeah. Well, my idea is that if you can generate a good enough price for both for both sides, that mm. could that could drive business. Yeah, okay. So we don't do any traffic, right? So that's what we used to do as an agency. But as a software provider, what we give you is the tools to actually collect the leads. So the first thing I'd suggest is you go onto like Facebook or somewhere yeah. or you know, PPC, you'd start running Google ads. So you target like specific demographics in regions that you want to hit. And what you do in Datable is build a landing page, like a really attractive landing page that has all these conversion principles attached to it, which is basically you're more likely to convert on a landing page or a website. You could apply it to a website, but you know, if you want people to like become a lead, you typically try and like focus it into a landing page. So these are things like the value proposition that's in the headline, a testimonial from someone that's uh, already become a customer of yours, a nice, easy form with a um, statement at the top of it, which drives like interaction with it, a list of companies that you operate with. So that could be like where your cleaners are from. So, you know, you could put like Molly made, whatever, or 
if some sort of regulations that cleaners are uh, touched by, I don't know what that is, like dirt devil or something. <laughs> Build that landing page. And then you'd, you'd either do the media buying yourself or you'd get a media buy like an agency or something. You start driving traffic to it. And anyone that's driven traffic, you know what you're looking for, which is you know, you're buying it on clicks, typically if you're doing it in Facebook or PDPC. And then you look at the conversion rates of the landing page. Now, what happens is you collect the lead in the landing page. You want to do two things. So one is you want to validate that data on the landing page because you'll get some people putting like Mickey Mouse details in and potentially bots, depending on where you're driving the traffic from. So you want to try and eradicate that, which Databolt helps you do. And then when the lead's collected, you need to hold it in a system. So a lot of people, depending on the size of the company, you know, they put it into something like Mail just so they could email it out or they have an API that goes to a dialer or a CRM or whatever. So we do all of that. We hold the data. You can send emails and SMS through it. You could send it to a dialer wherever you want it to go. But for something like the cleaning business, I mean, you could make that work really easily, I would think, because you build the landing page, you target people, you're really clear about what the opportunity is and the cost and things. And then you've got like, two things that happen. So you're going after the conversions. I don't know how that happens, whether it's on site, like an e-commerce thing, or whether um, someone has to bring them and like convert or whatever. But then you can start a nurturing process of the leads that don't convert as well. And then you start getting, depending on the amount of time that the lead becomes a customer, the lifetime value of the lead, which you can then measure in Databall as well and see how much you can actually spend on generating a customer and how long they're going to stay for. So that's the front end that you were doing. If you're doing it on the back end, which would be something like you approach a student platform. There's one I know of one called Student Beans that have like millions of students on their books that they can send emails or SMS to or whatever. I'd approach them and say, if I give you an affiliate link to this cleaning page, the Uber cleaning page for students, can you start driving traffic to it? I'll pay you two pounds for every person that becomes a lead. And then the same thing, you uh, measure all the traffic, you pay them out for every converted lead and you keep getting these leads in. Or you could do it on a CPA as well, which is just a, a for one that um, becomes a customer, you pay that out. So we work in a few different ways with companies, but it's all to do with the, like, we help them generate them, we help them validate it, we help them store it and we help them distribute the data. And then we do like a whole data orchestration bit in the middle, which is, APIs updating each other and moving data around things, which might not apply in the scenario that you uh, gave me. But you know, when you're yeah. dealing with like a much bigger organization, it's the sort of thing they look at. Sorry if, that was quite, sorry if that was quite a long-winded answer, but no, 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 it's, it's good, man. I just wish I met you a couple of years earlier. You know, yeah. <laughs> those things at the time would have been handy. It's, I'll tell you what; it's funny you mention it because one of the things that we did in Media Bowl. I don't know if anyone did this before, actually. I need to find out. But in fact, it was in the first year that we set up. There's a In Sheffield, there's a broadband company called Ask4. I don't know if you know about it, right? Yeah. I don't know if they've changed name. And uh, one of my colleagues I was working with, I said to him, like, we need to get working with those guys just because they're in Sheffield and it's a big company. Just see what we can do with them. And he was like, no, they'll never work with you. They'll never do anything externally with anyone, blah, blah, blah. So I said, right, who's the guy who owns it? I think it's Jonathan Burroughs. So I sent him an email and said, um, we're this digital agency. And you know when you set a company up and you're in the first year, six months, you've got so much drive and passion and effort yeah. and your belief is so strong. I literally thought, there's no way he's never not going to respond to me and talk to me. Anyway, lo and behold, he just responded and said, yeah, it'd be good to meet up. 
Anyway, as a result of all of that, we ended up dealing with their agency and did all this different, different stuff. But we ran lead gen um, forms. They controlled the agency that he introduced me to, controlled all the Wi-Fi access to every halls of residence in the UK. Not only that, every airport and every motorway service station. So we ended up as a tiny little agency that had just been set up in the first year running all this like massive lead gen. So we won some massive clients, you know, like Domino's. We ran all their student acquisition across this Wi-Fi portal, stuff like Orange Mobile, because we could do it in the airports. We started working with a load of different airlines and stuff like that. But imagine that you could hit the halls of residence just for like the last two weeks when they were thinking of leaving. You just got them all to sign up with their email addresses and everything else. And then when they into the big wide world, the students of like living in shared accommodation, it just becomes an absolute cesspit. There's Uber cleaning turns up. Yeah, mate. Now businesses have grown and have boomed and expanded massively in, in much weirder ways. So yeah. it's, it, sometimes it comes down to one email as you, as you have proven to yourself. So lead management platform, lead generation, the business has exploded. For me, as having a bit of sales experience, I've seen how that whole process is just so so automated now. And is, there's so many applications, so, so much software being driven to it and trying to help marketing departments and sales departments. As the founder of a company that's obviously driving that process forward, I want to hear your input about, about the lead management industry currently, what are the current trends and what's what is expected to happen maybe this year or even in the years to come? <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned about the explosion of lead management platforms. I, I don't know if there's two ways of looking at it, right? So there's B2B data and there's B2C data. So if you're dealing with B2B data, there's massive companies doing it, which is like HubSpot, Salesforce, yep. Keto, Zoho, whatever. If you do doing B2C data, it's not actually the same ecosystem. There's a difference between the two of them because one's like a CRM. So, you you know, what you're looking for is the contact. So the whole system is built around the individual, which is like Denislav Ivanov is a person. I'm going to leave loading notes around him. I'm going to put down like what his dog's called that he wanted to set up an Uber cleaning company, whatever else. So when I next speak to him, I'm going to know the triggers that I need to use. I can set tasks and everything else. But lead management system where it's B2C data doesn't operate like the granular level like that because there's so much more data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, what is it, six, seven billion people on earth? But I don't know how many companies there are, but like, you know, an order of like a massive order lower than that. So that's really the difference. So when we talk about B2C lead management systems, there really aren't that many. I mean, a lot of companies, what they do is they hack together CRMs. So they'll end up using Salesforce when and overpaying massively because they're all built on like the amount of records you put through the systems, right? Yep. So I don't know, if you put like the same amount of records that we do with some of our biggest clients, so we have clients who put like I don't know, 50,000 leads a day through Datable, right? Through their instance. You do that in Salesforce, you're going to be paying millions a year in the software. And that's the difference is like, you know, the, the, the focus on the individual because that's their systems built slightly differently. So yeah, lead management systems, you know, there's probably like 10 in the world that are worth talking about. Most companies, yeah, they use some like bastardized version of uh, a CRM or some weird software that cobbled together internally or like a bunch of different systems are all speaking together. They'll like, hook Zapier up and stuff between it. 
but yeah, it's a growing industry. I mean, the if you know B two C lead generation space is it's one of those things. If someone said to you like, "What's one of the biggest industries in the world?" you wouldn't say lead generation, right? You'd say something like, I don't know, automotive or airline or software i guess software you'd say if you think about it b2c lead generation like i don't know how many people listen to this podcast might be you know 10 or ten thousand. but i bet every single person has been a lead right i I suspect every single person in the uk over 18 and under or even every age over 18 has probably been a lead at some point it's literally like ubiquitous amongst the whole the online world and some offline as well so when you start thinking of it like that and you start thinking of like companies want to have leads because it's how they grow their company without people necessarily converting straight away, it has the potential to be huge. I, I don't think it's been realized yet. Not in a B2C sense. B2B is much more mature. Yeah. And what was the reason you decided to go into the B2C rather than B2B then? Just because it's the history that I know. and Well, there's a few reasons. So... One is just like, you know, since 2006, I've been working in the B2C lead generation space. I think what I just said about it not being as mature, you know, imagine going into the B2B space and you're up against Salesforce and HubSpot, you know. That isn't to say you can't, there isn't potentially some angle or niche that you couldn't hit because that's always a key, right? It's like finding a niche is in business is always... And the messaging that you put out, the way that you portray the company and things, but it's it's quite a mature market, the B two B CRM space. It still has a lot lot of room for growth, but you know it's a bit like starting a sort of social media site and going, we're going to take on Facebook, you know, or Instagram, or whatever. It's going to be tough, right? Yep. So that's number one. But number two is just the it's the space that I know, and number three, I just have like a real passion for me personally around a few areas, which is I love like connecting companies and people or prospects or consumers together. Like the idea of bringing data to life. So you know, everyone looks at data as like ones and zeros, or it's just like some, it's like a tiddlywink. You can sort of do what you want with it, you know, flip it here, flip it there, send it there, whatever, send them that email, do whatever. And we really lose sight of this fact that it's like, you know, just real life humans that want to interact normally and don't want to be treated like this. Um, yeah. Most of the time, they don't even know it's happening anyway. So that was a real like motivation. It still is a massive motivation for me. And I, I can see how the future's sort of going that way with um, certain regulations coming into the play like GDPR, TCPA in the US. And people are getting a lot more savvy about their personal data. And so I, you know, I, I like the idea of really helping people, not just companies, realizing the sort of value of their data and understand the security of it and help them within that as well. But with COVID-19, obviously that's changed consumer-facing businesses probably forever. How did that change your relationship with them? It didn't really, for us personally as a company, it's not really changed um, because obviously our entire business is like a SaaS business. It's all sort of in the cloud. We've got clients globally. Right at the beginning, we had quite a few people contacting us saying the verticals that we're operating in or generating leads in, we're struggling and stuff like that. And we had like, we did a small bit of media buying and like agency work for one uh, client we had in that dive because they uh, had a call center they were feeding leads into and the call center just all went home. But yeah, from a software perspective, it didn't really sort of impact us at all. We all obviously, like everyone else, had to work from home. 
but again, because we're a SaaS business and we have clients all over the world, we're sort of well-versed in just jumping on Zoom calls or Skype or whatever, Teams. I think what was more interesting is what the sort of innovative way some of our clients like change tack in their business. So like there's a guy um, who owns an insurance company that we work with, or it's a company, I just know the guy. You know, he was doing like home insurance, car insurance, whatever. And suddenly, the minute COVID hit, he brought out a new product, which was insurance for delivery drivers. Because he saw that like, you know, the minute restaurants shut, everyone's going to be ordering yep. takeaways. And so also a load of people were either being furloughed or changing like their employment. And so he went after that market. So there were quite a lot of things like that that we saw. Yeah. And we helped those people build landing pages and stuff in those areas. So, you know, we got involved in it that way. So how, how, how have you found it? Well, to be fair, COVID had quite a big effect on me as a, as a graduate student because I was supposed to start my, my graduate sales job back in May. Yeah. And it was a B2B company in, in the conference space, business conferences. Obviously, business conference is probably going to be the last thing that's that people started attending yeah. again. So that, that offer was withdrawn. I had to go back to my home country, Bulgaria, because if I'm in England, but I'm not studying and I'm also not working, what am I doing here in the end of the day? But now I've been back to, now I've been back to England. Luckily, I landed another job and I've just started working. It's the night shifts that I've been telling you about yeah. the last few days that have been absolutely tearing me apart for now. But, you know, I think things will get better. Genuinely, I just hope that I've forgotten what normality is. You know, for me, yeah. normality is now what, what we see. But I'm looking forward to, you know, to being able to have options made, to have a night in front of you and be like, what can I do now? What's a place I can go visit? Maybe go to maybe go to a bar, go to bowling, go to cinema. These things seem mm. so far from now, you know? Yeah, it's, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, you know, you see on Facebook and LinkedIn, people sort of, it's, I mean, you have to try and remain positive, but at the same time, you have to be realistic, which is like, this is just absolutely shit because you can't, you know, some people have it much worse than like, you've got it or I've got it, you know, they're out of work or they've even yeah, suffered yeah, yeah. ill health and stuff like that. But yeah, just uh, for me, it's like just going out to restaurants even, you know, just about sit in a cafe would do it. Yeah. And also I find myself when you've got young kids as well, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're sort of giving them breakfast and playing with them, whatever, until from like half six till say nine. And then you start working and you might work till six and do very little. You just come down for lunch if you're working in the attic or whatever. And then by the time, you know, you put them to bed and everything, it's like half eight, nine. And you're like, where, like the whole day is gone. I've not done anything. So I've spent like, I've never done this in my life. I'll go like two days without leaving the house. Yeah. It's just unusual, you know. But yeah, I can't complain. Other than stuff like that, it's not really, you know, it's, yeah. I think putting putting things to perspective is, is very important because, as you said, yeah, I've had my setbacks with my graduate job. Ultimately, I have I have a job now, so everything is good. And so obviously, you are able to run your business successfully. When you put things into perspective and see and see that things are not that bad, it's always much... And you appreciate that. You just appreciate that you're not actually struggling. Yeah, we can go to a restaurant, but so what? They're like, you know, it's going to be... Yeah. Sooner or later, it's going to be over. Luckily... How, how, how good is it going to feel when you can go on holiday and stuff will be yeah, great? Absolutely amazing. And to be fair, last summer, because I was in Bulgaria, and the things were getting pretty positive in Bulgaria in the summer, I actually had 
a decent one. I went to the seaside and stuff like that. So I can't even complain from that point of view. There's people I know in England, literally since March until now, which is coming to nearly a year, and they haven't had even like one week of kind of living that yeah. that life before COVID. So as you said, mate, put in perspective, not complaining, trying to look at the positives, but also not, kind not, of not one to, not one to grumble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, tell me about Sheffield. Yeah, you are you from Sheffield, by the way? Yeah. How was it to build a tech business in Sheffield? I mean, I don't know, like compared to anywhere else, because I've not built a tech business anywhere else. But I mean, what's interesting is that and this is what COVID's shown, actually, is it doesn't really matter where you build it. I think there was like pre-COVID, which probably did, and post-COVID, which is now everyone's accepted, like, you know, we now all live globally. You could just build anything anywhere. And it doesn't really matter. But yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, it's got good universities, which is always key because you, you know, we're a very sort of technical company, like more than half the company are developers. It's always like on the lookout for really good talent. So working with the unis, we've had like a few placements from Sheffield Uni and stuff like that, worked with their machine learning departments. And, you know, Sheffield, the city's like pretty good, isn't it? You know, cause you, it's, it's not the map it's not the biggest city, it's what six hundred thousand people. But we're surrounded by countryside, which is nice. But I think, you know, if you're building a business, that's really what it's about. It's just access to talent, isn't it? It's uh so it's it's just about whether you can get that. So if you I don't know, if we were in London or like I don't know, in Austin in the US, in Texas or San Francisco, you know, might be more access to talent, but there'd also be a lot more competition. So yeah, sort of pros and cons. But I, I, I mean, for me, I, I thought the same before COVID. It literally doesn't really matter where you are. All that matters is like whatever it is you're building and the sort of reasons why you're building it. I guess. Well, what do you What do you think of Sheffield as a, a city to build a tech business in? I do agree with you uh, that COVID has opened the borders in a way, and so mm-hmm. you're right in saying that you know when you're building a SaaS business, a tech business. The location itself doesn't matter. It's not like the biggest factor. Obviously, you're targeting people through their phones and and computers, so they can access it from everywhere. I do believe, though, that there is that there is effects coming from from ecosystems built within cities. For me, it it's a much deeper topic. For me, primarily it comes to to examples, students, aspiring students wanting to build businesses in in Uni of Sheffield or in Sheffield Harlem University. Do they see the examples of these successful businesses that make them think, okay, if they did it here in Sheffield, I can do it as well. Is there enough mentorship? One topic that I'm particularly interested in is, is there enough funding? Because in the end of the day, if you want to build a startup that's want to scale fast, want to scale fast uh, and has a high growth potential, it's going to need an initial financial injection. Is there enough funding? I don't believe there is at the moment. You know, so for me, it comes to it comes to those factors. While yes, talent, I agree that Union Sheffield and Sheffield Hand do provide uh, really good talent in terms of tech and uh, and business people. I just don't think that the ecosystem is quite mature enough that it really, how to say, it makes people coming out of uni confident that when they come out of uni, if they set up their business, they're going to have enough support and uh, the infrastructure that's going to provide for them the foundation so they can be successful. So how would you change that? Well, that's what I'm trying to. That's what I'm trying to understand by having uh, Shiv Valley. By the way, it's one of my main purposes. I want to talk with founders, successful founders, yeah. or maybe you know founders of startups that are 
on the growing now that have, ju- have just started. You know, I I spoke with two guys, James and Carol. They built a business called Deliverables last year. You know, they graduated in the last two years. They're students. They're trying to build a business now. I want to hear perspectives from them. I want to hear perspective from you. Obviously, as the founder of a very successful business, and figure it out. Yeah, I mean, do you, I guess with investment and stuff like that. And I, I don't know if this is just me, but I like, is that the same though? Is it regional? Like, you know, I don't know. We've had companies approach us from like everywhere going like, do you need investment and stuff? So US, you know, and it could be because we're a SaaS business and because we're already operating globally, we're sort of, you know, our footprints noticeable. Whereas I guess if you're like local, well, that's where you're like MVP is, but you've got more potential than that. And maybe you do need it locally because no one else is going to ever have heard of you, I guess. And maybe, yeah, maybe that's what it is. I mean, I know, like, I've spoken to a few companies, in fact, one the other day that has, like, Northern Tech Fund, which is, like, a government-backed scheme where they give a certain amount of money and they have to invest it into companies in the north. But just by the fact that they have a Northern Tech scheme suggests that there's probably a problem. Because <laughs> you know? yeah. why would you have it? You just have an investment scheme. Yeah. But, like, to separate it means, yeah, there probably is, like, a, a lack of underfunding, or, sorry, a, a lack of funding for companies in the area. Uh, I'd say that it's a bit of a chicken and egg kind of situation. Are there not not enough number of good businesses, so there's not enough funding? Or is there not enough funding that would fuel businesses that we don't currently see as potential world leaders become become ones? And not, you know, world leaders, obviously not every company can be can be a unicorn. But if you dive deep, you're gonna see cities smaller than Sheffield that have uh, very developed ecosystems and so very very good investment schemes and very good number of yeah. capital being put into startups. I mean, it's not going to be an idea thing because it's not like, you know, I don't know, Leeds has a monopoly on the ideas compared to Sheffield. It's yeah. Just, yeah. You know, everyone has ideas and they, you know, it's, I, I do think, I mean, you know, having now run businesses in Sheffield for 10 years, for 11 years, like I've never been involved locally, like in Sheffield. I don't, I don't even know any schemes or anything. I don't, you know, I know like the Chamber of Commerce and I know, is it digital online or whatever? Sheffield Digital, yes. Yeah, Sheffield Digital. And they're like a few companies, but a lot of them, you know, I'll bump into someone I used to go to school with and they'll be like, oh, I've got a company around the corner and, you know, I'll end up working with them more. Even earlier last, no, sorry, last year, I was on a plane back from Lisbon and got talking to a guy who runs Finder University in Sheffield. I'd have never met him, by the way. He literally sat next to me and we were flying to a different airport. It just happened to be a complete coincidence. So yeah, an ecosystem that sort of encouraged either more sharing or like more of a collaborative or community of companies that could work together, maybe. I think that's sort of what Sheffield Digital were trying to do it, but yeah. I, just, I just don't know uh, like if they've achieved it or... I think the other problem is that, and I meant to mention this actually, I was just thinking it when you were talking, is one thing that I've found with like hiring developers, because, you know, good developers like rockstar developers are hard to come by because they'll just get jobs like that, like anywhere all over the world. Yeah. Do you know when I think what they called Skybet moved to Sheffield? Yeah. There was a bunch of companies that started hiring. They moved like operations up here and hired tech teams, right? So they've got something like 150 developers like just sat in an office wherever their office is. And that I was like, my God, how are you supposed to compete with that? You know, like that's 150 developers just sat in an office. Yeah, we've got like eight developers, whatever, nine. Yeah. And it'd be good to like 
have those larger companies rather than just having maybe you know the office based here that they actually do something like locally with the other companies as well and i don't know have some sort of feeder scheme backwards and forwards that people could I don't know, work with or something i don't know i'm talking like completely off the top of my head just because i'm annoyed that it's very hard to hire developers and they've got 150 of them <laughs> but with the growth of your team did did the way you lead your team changed I mean, in some respects, I just became a lot more PC, probably. <laughs> so there was that. I mean, I struggled, I guess. One thing in this, it happens, I don't know if it happens with every company, and this is a good thing to, you know, it'd be good to chat with other people in Sheffield about whatever, is when different parts of companies start becoming siloed. So especially when you've got, like, very tech oriented team and they were all operating as a team in one way, and then you have, like, a totally commercially focused teams like sales guys, marketing, whatever, and they operate. You can start these like little silos. That I think is the hardest thing to break down. And the worst thing is if you can't break it down when you're small, I mean, how are you going to do it if you ever got really big, you know? Imagine like someone like Skybet, like we were saying, I mean, it's testament to the uh, company in the way it's run, I guess, if they can do it. Or maybe it's easier, I don't know. But yeah, I, I think... In terms of the, what I did as a team grew is sort of learning to delegate more, sort of, you know, I'm to try and step back from doing the day-to-day stuff constantly, which is, can be a struggle, right, for people when they've been, like, running the business and used to in a small team doing everything. So, yeah, just that really. I mean, not a huge amount else. I don't look after, like, the HR or anything, but I do try and sort of be the, the sort of person who describes the focus and the strategy and where we're going and try and keep people abreast of that. How big is that about currently, by the way? There's 18 of us. 18. Okay. And you started just with uh, you and a co-founder or? No, it's four of us. It's done. Four of us. Yeah. How do you grow from now on then? Hire more developers. Get, get into <laughs> Skybet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's interesting that you mentioned like investment and everything. It's one of these things. So at the moment, Dayball's completely bootstrapped, right? It's not a single penny of investment. Wow. So, which is quite unusual for a SaaS business, I think. It's not, yeah. you know, you don't find it very often. So it's one of these things where you look at it and think, do we carry on bootstrapping and you're going to grow to like a certain, you know, a certain way or do you take investment? And you could probably like accelerate that. Yeah. So that's the, that's the sort of conundrum that you have. And then you, you know, it's sort of, then what it really comes back to is why you know, when you said to me why are you doing this I think it was a question like what how did it start and we were yeah. talking about like people's personal data and being able to connect brands and prospects together and doing all this in an ethical way and stuff yeah the problem with taking investment sometimes can be that you become a sales house right because you've yep. got to start shifting the product yep and so if your purpose is like potentially beyond I want to shift the product. It can start having like not a conflict. That, you know, you you need to be careful. You can keep that like vision or mission together. So that's the only thing I think you know that goes on in my mind is like how dedicated to the cause are you of like creating an ecosystem where like it's full transparency within data and things, and how much do you actually need to grow the company? Because you know, otherwise you're going to be sitting here in 20 years time going hey you've got another client <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So yeah, it's, I'm sure like, you know, all owners of companies and founders and stuff like that have the same conundrum and think about it. Cause it's, the thing is having investments good, but it's not necessarily something to be celebrated, right? It's like, it, it's, it serves a purpose, yep. but it doesn't like, it's not positive potentially. It's, yep. it can be a positive for the company because obviously it's going to like, it, it'll help it grow. They can invest money in marketing, sales, development, whatever they're going to do. But at the same time, so I remember someone once said to me, like, this is one extreme when investment is actually a sign of failure. And I was like, well, yeah, it is in a sense because <laughs> you can't do it without it. But at the same time, you know, investment is also a sign of a good vision because someone's believed in you enough yep. to, uh, to fund it. That is a good point. And actually, that's like an ongoing debate on social media is about, about capital and investment into startups because you have the bootstrap startups which there are some bootstrap startups that even take uh, a much more, their position is is that startups that need all that money can't do it without them. And so why do they deserve that money, basically? But again, for me, that's there's a very simple argument against that. You have company, you have an example like Google, where if they didn't have investment in the beginning, they couldn't do what they did because they needed to figure out how to monetize on that algorithm. So... They are, it's, I, I, I've got, we've got a podcast as well called BTC Legion and what guy who I know was on it a few weeks ago and he runs a native lead generation company. And really, I mean, what they do is really great. And he need, basically, if you're buying traffic, you have to, you know, if you're going to try and bootstrap that, you have to go really, really small. So you end yeah. up like you know, five leads or two sales. But if you're going to accelerate it because you know what you're doing already and setting a new company up, he had to get investment because he's like, okay, I need to spend a million pounds on traffic in the next month because I've got orders for the X, Y, and Z. So what else are you going to do? You have to take investment. It's literally like, no, I mean, I guess you could try and go to the bank or, you know, sell your soul or something. I don't know what, but yeah, you have to, there's a lot of, there's a lot of scenarios when you do. And also, you know, it's it's just down to the individual. Um, What I would say is, you don't, I don't know whether this happens, but I, you know, if it does, and I can imagine it does, is people like, rather than thinking of an idea or thinking of a company or thinking of, you know, whatever else is thinking, I want investment for something. As in, that's like the aim, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I think in that instance, that would be almost like a really weird way of thinking because, you know, what you've got, you've got a passion, you've got to believe in what you're doing. You know, you need a company, you need a vision, you need a mission. And then if you can't achieve it, bootstrapping, or you can't get it to what you want, bootstrapping or anything else, or you know you can't right at the beginning, obviously get investment. But if your aim is just investment, with, you know, and then you're desperately thinking of ideas that you could get yeah. investment on, okay. it's sort of pointless. You know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that's that relates even to the creation of business itself. If you want to create a business just for the sake of creating business, I don't think there's a good reason to do it. But if you want to solve a problem and you want to form your business around it, then I think that everything seems much more seamless because you're driven by that by that purpose you said you said about. So I completely agree with you on that regard. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, just, I, I'm, I don't mind either way. You get investment in a company, whatever. There's pros and cons both ways. Yep. It's, there's no right or wrong. It's just the way that you're gonna do it and the motivations of the person for me. Sure. It's always good. It's always good that it's there, you know. So, like, of course. Yeah. Simon, do you want to move to the five questions that I ask all of my guests? 
Yeah, go for it. Okay. So can you recommend a book that you think that every founder or future founder should read? There's a few. I mean, you know, you've got like seven habits of successful people is always good. How to win friends and influence people. There's always like classics and stuff. A book I read recently around customer success by Nick Mehta. That was good. Um, it's like the last book I read. It all depends on the business that you're trying to run, I think, rather than a book. But yeah, I'd recommend that book if you're involved in SaaS or anything where customer success sort of comes into it or customer experience. It's a great book by Nick Mehta, yeah. Why the name Datable? That actually came from Mediable, which started because one of uh, my colleagues, Ben Long, we've already... We knew we were setting Mediable up on whatever date was, June the 20th, 2011. And we'd chosen a name, which was actually Performix, and gone into the accountants to set the company up. And the night before, on a Sunday, we had an order that we had to fulfill or start. So we needed like a purchase order or invoice the next day. He said, there's already a company called Performix, just spelled slightly differently. You need to tell me another company name in 15 minutes as I'm closing the office up and you can't do it. This is literally true. We just sat in a cafe and Ben was eating out of a bowl and we were like, we just need to call it anything. Just call it Media Bowl. Wow. <laughs> so contacted the account and went to call it Media Bowl. And then because we had Media Bowl, when we started building this software, we were like, we should call it Data Bowl. That's the, you know, I w- maybe in the future we'll change the name, but that's how Databall got named. There's no romantic yeah. uh, thinking about it or, you know, whatever. It's, it was literally a spur of the moment thing. Yeah. So, what is one place in Sheffield that you would advise everyone to visit? One place in Sheffield everyone should visit. You tell me your one place first, and I'll think about it where you're saying it. You actually put me on the spot here because I because I ask everyone this question, but I haven't thought about one specific place. Peak is a very easy answer. Where? Uh, the Peak District. Yeah. Oh, can I just class? I was I was going to go really specific, oh. like a, a particular thing in the uh, Peak District. <laughs> I know where I do actually that everyone should visit in Sheffield. Have you ever been to Slippery Stones? No. It's like a natural pool with a like a little bit of rock that you can jump into the water off and it is absolutely freezing so i've done it for like a long time but i remember the last time i went that was probably 18 19 long time ago and i jumped in and it's one of those moments where you feel like your whole body's frozen you can't swim so i thought i was going to sink but i didn't i managed to like get my body moving so just that just for the pure experience of hell yeah, sounds like a nice place to go to, um, to go visit in the summer. Yeah, I mean that's when you go, but it's still freezing. It's really, really cold. Oh. I'd love to see. I'd love to see someone do it in winter. <laughs> my next question is about you and your twenty-year-old self. So I had a guest on my podcast, Max. He runs a business called Egic. It's in the deep tech industry, a quantum tech business. And let's imagine that he creates a time machine where he can give you fifteen minutes with your twenty-year-old self. So what would you tell him? Probably don't worry about anything. Just enjoy yourself. That's like a recurring phrase, by the way. So many people share this, and I just realized that we should teach that in schools. Don't worry about anything. Yeah, I mean, do you know what? It really it made me think the other day, actually. I bumped into someone that I hadn't seen for 20 years. 
18 years. And so I remember at the time being not stressed about life, but thinking like, what do I want to do in life? And, you know, what's my future going to be and whatever. So I was around that sort of age. And I remember thinking now, like, why on earth was I even worried about it? You know, when you're that young, like, you've got your whole life ahead of you. And if you're going to, you know, it's just pointless worrying at that age. It's, you know, and I think a lot of people do. They worry about what their future is going to be. They're going to have enough money. They feel this pressure to be successful or, you know, they try and sort of emulate the most successful people and look at them in a way. But, yeah, I just say don't worry about anything. Literally go and enjoy yourself with the very little money that you have. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. I certainly did worry when I was 20. I certainly do worry even now. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, I worry even now, but, you know, like as you get older, you, you have more, you know, you have mortgages to pay, you have kids to look after, you have yeah. jobs that you've got to go to. I mean, you might when you're 20, but, you know, when you look back at when you're 20, the job that you did, you're like, yeah. why was I even bothered? Which I probably wasn't, actually. But <laughs> I, I, that is what I just tell myself, is don't worry, enjoy yourself. What did you work when you were 20? I don't even remember. I got sacked a lot. I got sacked a lot. So I've I got, guess, whatever I did, I'll have got sacked. I guess that shows that why you became a founder. No, I don't know. It's, you know, I just... It wasn't, I didn't care at that age, but I couldn't, do, you know, I wasn't interested in anything that I did. It's not like you're going to get a job doing what you really want to do. You're just sort of like trying to get beer money or, you know, do whatever, aren't you? But at the same time, that then worries you because you think, oh God, you know, is life always going to be like this? Yeah. I just don't even remember. It's a long time ago. It won't have been anything very interesting, that's for yeah. sure. My final question is about Databowl and for you to tell me one big, hairy and, and audacious goal for your company. Um, it's not actually that big and hairy. I just, I hope that we can do it justice, which is machine learning that we've done. So we've actually implemented this like quite a while ago now, which is probably two years ago, maybe even more, three years ago, where when data comes in, we can start to look at like the propensity to convert and things or the propensity to the intent that the prospects have it has in relation to the offer that they've been shown. So it sounds really simple, right? It, I mean, we've already built it and the machine learning's in there and everything, but what's been really strange for us and I can't, I've been that busy or we all have doing that many other things. We've not really looked into why is it's just not really taken off with anyone, that particular element of machine learning. So when we thought of it and started building it, I was like, this thing is going to destroy the world. It's going to be the best thing ever. And then you do it and you're like, why is no one interested? (laughs) Why have we literally got no one using this thing? So, yeah, I mean, when you're working with data, which effectively, you know, leads are, I think us getting that realized would be quite good. And the other is potentially prospects, sort of being in charge of their own data. So rather than, or as well as publishers working with them, it's like as if a person was their own publisher and sort of makes decisions about what's going to happen with their data and how they interact with companies with it and things, which you could do now, but I just don't know if like the world's ready for it, you know? Yeah. Um, like, yeah, we'll have to see. But it's those those sort of things that I'd be I'm looking at as big, hairy, um, audacious goals. Yeah, I like the second one. Yeah. Simon, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Dennis. Nice talking to you.
that was everything for today. I want to remind you that Chief Valley exists to give platform to founders and different startup ecosystem stakeholders from Sheffield. If you're a founder or involved with our ecosystem and want to be on the podcast, don't hesitate to contact me. As always, thanks to Chef Tech Parks for supporting me. Thanks for Sheffield Digital and Twinkle Hive for being my social media buddies. And massive thank you to you listening this podcast. Until next time.